fiction writers. If you've set a goal of finishing a publishable draft in a year's time and are looking for an in-depth resource to help you through each step of the writing and publishing process, Author Accelerator Certified Book Coach Susan DeFridis has an exciting new offering you won't want to miss. Workshops Against Empire includes five courses on story structure, crafting scene, mastering POV, querying and pitching, and more, with the goal of helping you reach your goal with confidence. It's an immersive program that's available in a variety of formats and price points, including a self-paced DIY course bundle. To learn more about the course and the year-long group coaching program coming next year for fiction writers, visit bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts to sign up for a free sneak peek with Susan DeFridis and Author Accelerator CEO Jenny Nash that promises to include tips you can use now to finally finish that work in progress. Learn more at bookcoaches.com backslash podcasts. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Okay. Hey, welcome to the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast. This is the podcast about writing all the things. Short things, long things, fiction, nonfiction, cookbooks, poetry, whatever. We write it all. We edit it all. We query it all. We propose it all. All that stuff. So I am your uh, host today, Jessica Leahy. Jess Leahy. I'm the author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. And you can find my work at The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. Today we have a really cool pod swap situation in the sense that I was asked to be on someone's podcast and uh, I asked her to be on my podcast and we decided to do it all at once since our stories, our writing stories are really intertwined in a very cool way. Today's uh, guest is Kirsten Jones. She is a Hall of Fame D1 volleyball player. Um, She is a 15-year Nike executive. She is a writer, obviously, and she is also a speaker and a peak performance coach. And I hope you enjoy this this episode because her new book, Raising Empowered Athletes, comes out this year, and I get to play a small role in the origin story of this book, and I could not be more proud of that. So enjoy, everyone, and thanks for listening. Well, in today's pod swap, as promised in the introduction, I would love to introduce uh, Kirsten Jones. And um, we are doing this as a pod swap, so it's a little weird because it's going to be on her podcast and it's going to be on my podcast. And we are here to talk about her book, um, Raising Empowered Athletes. And um, I'll let you take the other half of the introduction, Kirsten. Thank you. Thank you for being on mine on Raising Athletes. And it's so fun to be on yours. And I've never done a pod swap like this before. So this is going to be a fun, fun hour. I just have been so looking forward to this and interviewing the New York Times bestselling author, Jessica Leahy, who I was have been girl following, fangirling over for the last seven or eight years and following the breadcrumbs that you leave behind as when I found you and this had come out, I think it had already been out four or five years and it was still just keep, you know, Kristen Bell had yet to to blurb about it and it took up another swing and then found your podcast and then, you know, following your journey 
of the addiction inoculation. So parents, this is just, it's just going to be filled with all these great nuggets um, and information for our kids as they're going and growing through all of this. Well, do you want to start with our origin story, how we met each other? That sounds great. (laughs) Shall I, shall I tell it? Or yes, tell tell it. No, you tell the story. I mean, from my perspective, it was pretty great, but you know, but I, I like you telling it. Okay. So yes, I had had this epiphany. I've been, was taking this entrepreneurial class and what am I going to do with, you know, all of this experience. I'd worked at Nike for 15 years. I'd been, you know, I'd been in Europe. I'd been all over. I'm now a mother of three. I'd done the kick and chase soccer thing. I watched all these FOMO parents have these crazy reactions. And I had been a division one athlete. So I thought, you know, what are these people doing? And at this moment, in Paris at this conference, I was sitting there and this this beautiful idea just came to me, like, I need to write a book. And I was so excited about it. And I came home and I told my husband, and he was like, okay, great, whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> and, yeah, and I picked up the phone and I called my best friend at the time and told her and she was like, well, why? No one's going to read this it. this is the thing, like, it's so unfair in the moment that like the big idea hits you with me either, you know, gift of failure didn't hit me sort of in the same way that the addiction inoculation hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks and you just want everyone to be as excited as you are. And it's a little weird when everyone's like, why don't you see it? <laughs> and I've got this like, wah, wah, wah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so... So I better research like, okay, what makes people successful at this? And so I look up the best parenting books and of course, number one, the gift of failure and this woman, Jessica Leahy, and she lives in New Hampshire at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I go onto your website and lo and behold, that night you're speaking in Los Angeles. I'm like, okay, that's like, I I didn't realize it was that immediate. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that part. Yes. And got in my car, drove an hour to La Cunada, uh, like sitting in this grade school library with, I don't know, in kid little kid chairs with my knees up around my ears. And I could have finished every single one of your stories. And I was just <laughs> not, nodding violently at everything you said to the point that I was like, I'm normally kind of shy and I don't want to be too weird. And so I was like, but I'm like, come on, Kirsten, you want to write this book? Just go say hi. Well, you have to know, you have to know from my perspective, I talk about this a lot, that La Cañada presentation was really small. It was in, it was, I was doing a favor for a friend. It was at her kid's school. It was in a really small, like elementary school library, as you said. Um, I've gotten very used to sitting in the kid-sized chairs and using the kid-sized toilets and all that sort of stuff. Um, And I say this everywhere I go, whether it's a big event or a really small event, there are always a couple of people that I need in the audience. I call them my shiny people. And they're the people that if the if my energy starts to flag or if the energy of a group starts to flag, I have some people that sort of are radiating a, a positive energy that I can pull from. And that night you were one of my shiny people. So that was, <laughs> you were helpful as well. Because sometimes a small event can be tricky because... I don't know. It's you. Every, it's so close. Anyway, you were one yeah, of my shiny yeah. people that evening. So I waited till the end to go up to, of course, buy the book and have you sign it. And and you looked at me and you said, do we know each other? <laughs> and I said, no, but we should. We need to because I want to write your book, but through the lens of sport. And you, without missing a beat, said, please do it. We need you. 
I, she goes, you go, I get asked all the time to talk about sports parenting. And she goes, you go, I have a chapter in the book, but it's, that's not my jam. So we need to do that. And that was the validation that I needed in the moment because I'd been writing to myself on my whatever, you know, like, and then flushing it down the toilet and trying again <laughs> for, for a couple of years already. So it was this beautiful moment of validation that, no, 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 you can do this. And you have exactly what it, what it takes to do this. And I've been since then saying, you know, every time I get a sports question, I'm like, you know, I can answer that question. I've got some ability to answer that question, but just wait in a couple of years, <laughs> this book is going to be coming out. At that point, you were like still writing the proposal or something like that. I'm like, but don't worry, it's coming. This amazing book is going to be coming. And then we're going to have the answer to all of these questions and many more because I'm not, I'm not an athlete. Like I, I have had sports that I've really enjoyed, but um, it's really scary to, um, try to be, you know, quote, an expert on a topic within a, you know, an area like sports, which isn't mine. So I was just so excited when you started talking about this book, because I think it's going to be, it's going to be so great. And since then, I mean, I've had events where I drive into a, like us, I was in a suburban town in Massachusetts and I started seeing yard signs in all of the yards near the school saying, be kind to coaches. And you know, the only reason those signs are there is because some people were so very not kind <laughs> to coaches. Right? And over and over again, I was hearing about, you know, volunteer coaches dropping out because they just weren't going to handle it anymore. Or, you know, I get hired to go to like um, U.S. club soccer and some of the coaches going like, you know, it's this weird self-perpetuating thing that the stronger youth sports get, the more intense youth sports get. And how do we straddle that, like, you know, feeding a kid's passion, especially as parents, feeding their passion, you know, wanting them to be the fullest person they can be within that passion without being overbearing. And so this, and especially, you know, um, I have to disclose that you had a phone conversation with my sister because my sister's daughter is very, very good at wrestling. And she's at this place now looking at colleges. And so how do you support without taking over? And how do you not do too much for them so that this can be a growth opportunity. And what happens when, like, for most people, even playing in college is not even an option? Like, it's, you know, great. You've been this, you know, I think there was an article in the New York Times ages ago, back when KJ was at Motherload, that was something like, your kid is not going to play sports in college. Now what? <laughs> because those yeah. are the odds. And so for you, I could, you know, I was just so grateful that someone with some expertise in this was willing to tackle this topic because there's a lot of very strong feelings about this topic. Um, which brings me to actually the very first question that I, so we're going to trade back and forth on questions. But the first question I want to ask you is one of the first things you have to think about when you're writing a proposal is who is this book for? You know, this is going to be about raising empowered athletes. So obviously, you know, this is partially for parents, but you have to also keep in mind that there need to be sort of additional ways into this. So how did you decide when you were writing as someone who has also been an athlete? Is this for the athletes? Is this for the parents? Is this for the coaches? How did you make that decision? I think that great question. I think that's part of what took me so long was who am I talking to and where should my focus be? And ultimately I decided it was for the parents because that my, my sweet spot is around and, and really 
as I'm saying now, like take out take out athlete and put in scientist, take out athlete and put in artist or right. musician, or this really isn't about raising empowered athletes. Cause like you said, less than 1% are going to go pro less than 5% are going to play in college. It's a $20 billion industry and we're not raising athletes. We're raising kind, caring, resilient human, human beings. So we, I, this is the put on your mask first and the better parent we can be, the more tools they will have to respond, not if, but when the headwind blows, when it doesn't go their way, the tools that they're gonna learn about grit and resilience and gratitude and attitude and teamwork, those are the biggest gifts that we're gonna get. And we we have this idea that, you know, yes, it's, and I played volleyball in college, so I know like, wouldn't that be wonderful if my child followed my footsteps? But if we re reverse engineer it and look back, now I'm almost on the, you know, the, the other side of it. I've got a 22, 19 and 17 year old, you know, parents, if you had the wisdom of, of hindsight and looking back on your 35 year old child, it really ends up not being about the state championship or that, yes, those are nice or getting the college scholarship, even if that happens, it really ends up being about what did they learn along the way that they're using now? And yeah. those gifts are the ones that, you know, that I use to get myself into Nike, to get my, you know, to get the first job, to to start doing what I'm doing now. It's all about those, I think they're like little, you know, arrows in your quiver that become this great resource for life. So yeah, it's it's for the parents because I hope my mission is to help parents so that we can be more present with ourselves and what we want so that when they need us, we're there to be a reflection for them and not, it's, it can't be your dream. Whose dream is it? And if it's my dream, it's not going to work. If it's their dream, there's, there, there's, and I'm not saying that there's a better chance, but that's really the only way it's going to endure. Yeah. Cause when you're uh, back to the proposal writing idea, there's this tricky line you have to write between, you know, you want to be able to say, I'm going to have the opportunity to sell this book in lots and lots of places. Um, this isn't a book just about sports, but at a certain point, you are the expert in this particular field. And so it's sort of this weird needle to thread um, to mix metaphors that you have to say, OK, well, I am the expert in this area, so I'm going to present this argument here. And then because you're also a speaker and I'm also a speaker, then you have to say, okay, well, this is about education or this is about parenting, but where else might people be interested in this topic? And then you have to open the doors back up and say, okay, well, this isn't just about sports. It's just this weird marketing thing that has to happen between the book and, and the speaking. Um, well, and back to the proposal, cool. sorry. the yeah. I pitched it to, I don't know, 30 agents, including yours. And she was the only one who kindly, quickly said, no, thank you which I was probably didn't have it positioned the right way. So, I mean, zero, you know, it's like, oh, wah, wah, wah. But, you know, I was also <laughs> a little a little scared of her, to be honest, because you're always like, oh, she's really tough, but she's really fair. And so when she said no, I was like, she probably wasn't for me anyway. Um, well, and I, you know, but, you know that I pursued my agent for 10 years. She said no to lots of stuff before she said yes to working with me on Gift of Failure. And a lot of people, the way the feedback I heard was, we thought, we think you're writing a book of how to raise a pro athlete, right? And so mm -hmm. the message wasn't being, I, you know, so that, that's a good message for the listeners is 
are you positioning yourself in a way that you're getting across what you really think you want to be getting across, right? Yeah. So in my mind, it was clear. And I, I mean, I've had a hundred different titles, but when I landed on empowered athletes and I had a couple of marketing people go, oh, you don't need empowered, just put in raising athletes. And I said, yeah, but when you take out impact, that's the whole point of the book. Yeah. yeah. I want kid who, kids who have agency, kids who have, they know they are enough just as they are. Yeah. That's what this is about. Which is such a different title and uh, don't even get us started with titles, but you know, the (laughs) idea you could have had like raising successful athletes in there, which is a whole other book too. It's, it's really, yeah, the, the title thing is, is crazy, but in an, also for the, for the hashtag and writing listeners, that's a really good point that that process of querying agents was useful, even the rejections. And the nice thing about Lori Abkemeyer, my agent, is that she has been really willing to look at stuff again. Um, in fact, uh, something I'm working on now was an idea that a year ago she said, you know, that's just not, and it was an audience problem. It was a readership problem. She was like, yeah, that's just not working, but, you know, keep thinking about it. And, you know, a year later, I've solved those problems. So that whole process of trying to get an agent on board and seeing things the right way. Sometimes it, you want to think it's just, I need people to see it the way I see it. But then every once in a while we have to admit, oh, maybe, maybe the way I saw it wasn't the best way to see it. Well, and my secret sauce was eventually I found a, an amazing book coach who was a writer. He's an author of 25 books himself. He was a sports writer for a newspaper in Eugene, Oregon for 20 years. He's an athlete. He just finished, you know, at 70, just finished hiking the Pacific Coast Trail. He's a grandfather of athletes. So when I took my 150 words of bleh, he just took it and went, (laughs) right? And he would shrink it into, and it was like, that's exactly what I wanted to say. They're all my words, but he helped me shape and form and put them in a way that, you know, and, and again, I'm not trying to be the best writer. I really want to be on bigger stages. My dream is to do more speaking, but I wanted this book to put my fe- best foot forward. I didn't want it to be like, oh, well, it's not very well read and written and it's got a bunch of errors in it. So it was beautiful to have. And I also, I'm a team sports girl. So I loved to have somebody to pass the baton to and go, okay, what do you think of this? And everything he brought back would, oh, oh, kid, you're burying the lead. Bring that up front and move this around and give me an example here. And he was able also to, because I, I have a really hard time promoting myself. Like, oh, you know, they're there. Don't talk about yourself. And he'd be like, no, you got to tell people what your expertise is and why you have it. And, and it's in this and this and this area. And it was so refreshing to not have to do that heavy lifting myself, but have somebody else help me frame that up. So that was gold. Um, yeah. And then the, the next one was finding an agent who, when I met him, I he we had this great Zoom call during the middle of COVID and every single thing he was like, okay, now this is great. And your proposal needs a little bit of work, but yes. And then your your audience and, oh, you've been talking all the way through 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 uh, COVID. And then I just kept waiting for the, but? but. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, no, no, but. He's like, no, this is great. I was like, okay, what's up with you? <laughs> he got it. He got what I, he's like, and I'm a parent of two athletes. I get it. I know what you're trying to say. There's definitely a market for this. We just need to go after the publishers. So then again, it's finding the right match. So when I got matched with Triumph, they do sports books. Mm -hmm. So, and their best selling book of all time is Jenny Finch's Throw Like a Girl, which Mm -hmm. came out 10 years ago. They've sold, she sold over a hundred thousand copies. 
there it's evergreen. And so when I got on the phone with them, they were like, we love this idea because this isn't going away. These people are only becoming more and more, you know, overwhelmed by how do we handle this? So yeah. as we see you the way we saw Jenny, which was as this, you know, again, hopefully a somebody who can hold the megaphone for a while. Well, I love that idea also that people underestimate that, you know, you, you hope you're going to query, you know, the right agents. And yet you don't know what's going on in their lives. You may or may not know, even if they have kids, what their kids are interested in. And so it just so happens that Lori Abkemeyer's kids were in the sort of the middle school, early high school range, right when I was writing Gift of Failure. And she was really interested in middle school at the time. And that, you know, that meant something to her. And so never underestimate that once, you know, don't take it as so personally when someone comes back and says, oh, this just isn't for me, because it may be that level of this just isn't for me, the agent. And so I love the idea that, you know, I really, I've sort of, I like the idea that this is a very personal thing. It can be a very arbitrary thing and finding ways to, um, to not say, oh my gosh, I suck or my book sucks or whatever. I just need to find the right fit. I think that's a great, uh, a fantastic way to go. And I love the fact that your publisher specifically, they specialize in sports books. So it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. It's a yes, really it was. Match. It was a match made yeah. in heaven. And and I, it was five years, people. So it wasn't like, oh, I just did a couple of queer. I mean, it was and rewriting and throwing you know out and then redoing my whole scaffolding on my how was I setting this up? And to back to the point, who am I speaking to? And what do I, how do I want to frame up this message that's not overwhelming? But yeah, eventually getting there was so beautiful. We had that first conversation in 2017. I looked it up on my calendar. <laughs> I had to look up that event and figure out when that was. So yes, let's pivot. You, you, get, you yeah. get to go next. I get to go next. So I want to talk about the gift of failure. Okay. And again, the theme that I get all the time, right? Is I have an athlete right now. She's always been really great. She's, you know, was always the, the best early on. And now she's getting to, getting to the sophomore year. She's not as, you know, she's not as big. She's not as, doesn't have the size that some of the other athletes have. And the mom calls me and says, because she doesn't want to go in the gym because she's afraid that she's going to fail. So she'd mm-hmm. rather just not go at all yeah. than expo- expose herself to, for the first time, feeling like I'm not enough. So it's a theme we can talk about whatever sport or whatever part of life you want. But what what is your now that you've been talking about this for so long, you know, what is your message to parents about how do you support them through those, you know, moments? Yeah, so this is this is a fantastic question and one of the things that parents have to do sometimes is take a breath and realize that they are sometimes just there to listen and not to fix it. I mean, that's sort of the the biggest thing I had to learn as a parent, something I'm still learning because I want to, I just, I want to fix it. It's something as an author, you know, people send me questions all the time, especially when it comes to stuff like substance use prevention. And I'll get these emails from people who are just desperate because they're so worried about their kids having um, a substance use problem. And, you know, I have on the wall behind me um, lots of sort of uh, items that are special to me. And I have a magic wand up there um, because I always used to say, I want to just wave a magic wand and make this okay. But sometimes we just can't. So being a listening, uh, uh, being, 
just a sounding board for kids is, is one of the most important things we do. And in Gift of Failure, there's that thing I talk about where, um, you know, serious adult athletes talk about the ride home with their parents as one of their least favorite things about youth sports. And that says a lot to me about the function some parents see in the drive home from the big tournament or the whatever, um, having to do with either, you know, criticizing or being the coach or whatever. Um, but just listening and, and using those empathetic, that must be so difficult for you or, and then once you've done that, once you've done just the listening, then there's this reframing that we can do that I think is so important. Um, reframing for me um, I tend to th- think about that as how we help kids either see the upsides. We had to do a lot of it during COVID, you know, is it, what possible positives can we take from this really crappy situation? And sometimes that was just, you know, more time as a family or whatever. Sometimes for some people, there wasn't really an upside, but helping kids reframe um things that are difficult for them, either as learning experiences, as an opportunity to become better at something, as an opportunity to decide whether how much this means to you. Like these critical moments of, you know, I've been losing a lot lately and it's really a crisis of confidence for me. And that can be a really useful time to either say, maybe it is time for me to part ways with this sport, or maybe this is the kick in the pants I needed. And you know, especially as kids go from the small pool where they're the best and have always been the best to regionals where, okay, maybe they lose one match to states and suddenly they're like, oh, wait a second, this is a whole other thing. And the niece that uh, we were just talking about, she just got back from nationals a couple days ago and it did not go the way she was hoping it would go. And helping her listening on the way. My sister, you know, did a really great job of just listening and is helping her reframe some of that stuff into opportunities because next year she'll be a senior and this is not her last nationals, hopefully. Um, That's going to be a really important part. What do, you know, when I talk about reframing, it's what have you, what worked in this experience? What didn't work in this experience? What are you going to leave behind and what are you going to bring with you to the next experience? And part of that is, do you want there to be a next experience? And dealing with our own baggage around that, um, you know, can be tough too. You know, we tend to talk a lot about what I hear a lot from parents are things like, oh, but my kid has so much invested in this sport because they've been doing it since they were four. And in the meantime, the kid is like, yeah, but I, I feel like I'm done with this and I, I want to try some other things. Um, and I get that within the sports world, there is a definite oh, but I owe the team or I'm not a quitter. And there's all of that baggage that goes along with that in athletics as well. But then the last thing I want to add to this is there is very much a climate now of kids being so freaked out by the idea of failing or the idea of not being good at something right off the bat that they're afraid to try. And when we are faced with that, we have to do two things. Number one, saying all the right words is great and all that sort of stuff, but we have to model it for them. We have to model risk-taking. We have to uh, model for us in our house. It tends to look like, you know, setting goals for ourselves. And one of them always has to be a little bit scary. Um, Setting the bar higher for ourselves, trying something that makes us uncomfortable, um, that kind of stuff. They have to see us doing that first. Second, we have to bring 
the whole conversation about why we're doing this back to process and away from end product. It can't be about the trophy. It can't be about the scholarship. It can't be about the nationals. It has to be about the process and the process has to be worth it to them in the moment as opposed to as a means to a larger end. And I'm, I'm not saying that like going to practice every day is going to be bliss, but you have to find a way to take something out of the, the process that is worthwhile for you as a human being. And I'm about to do a bonus podcast for hashtag am writing about why I decided to abandon a goal I had that I was supposed to be doing this summer for something else because there was nothing about the process of working on that project that was pleasurable to me. And I echoed that. I said that to my agent and she said, well, there has to be something fun about it or pleasurable about it. And when I said no, she kind of looked at me like, well, why the heck are you doing that then? So the big idea is be a sounding board. Don't feel like you need to fix everything. Um, help reframe so that you can get something positive out of the situation and then model for them that you're willing to take risks and put yourself in a position where you're going to fail and you're going to make mistakes. And I don't know if that stomach growl was audible, but hopefully it wasn't. <laughs> and finally, you have to be the person who's constantly pulling the conversation back to process away from end product because that really can diffuse some of the anxiety around the perfectionism game that often happens with kids. And there is a very fine line between being a perfectionist and being someone who's paralyzed by that perfectionism and unable to function because they're so undone by needing to be perfect at every moment. I tell parents the only six words your child needs to hear on the way home are, I love to watch you play. Yeah. yeah. And to your point about reframing, you don't need to reframe in the car ride home. You need to allow mm -hmm. them some time to yeah. process it usually about an hour and they've moved on and can we get ice cream? But whatever amount of time, depending on your kid and depending on how intense they are, you know them, give them space. And then in another day or three, or they'll, they'll let you know when they're ready. Hey, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, what do you yeah, think? That's, that's always such a really important point. And I, I think I answered something similar to this on a somewhere online and someone reminded me, Oh, but first there's, there's, the time to just leave them alone because, you know, trying to get right in there in moment one and say, OK, but what are the positives of the situation? That's not a winning strategy. That's not going to work for anyone. And, you know, it's going to cause your kid to shut down. And yeah, with my kids, it was always like, could you, can we just not do the gift of failure thing? Can you just help me with this? You know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> I, I totally hear you. I'm so glad you stuck that in there because that's really, really important. Is um, My daughter is and I were process. just in in Chicago for JOs for junior nationals for volleyball and the week happens, whatever didn't go that well, but we're literally in the airport getting ready to board the flight and you're getting texts about tryouts for next year. Right. And which team are you going to be on? And like, it is relentless parents. Like yeah. it is. And you, so you think, Oh, that's nice for you to say. And okay. Yeah. Great for you. But you've got tryouts. This, this like the, the next day or the day after the process is your process, right? And if you're not ready to talk about it or, you know, don't share with the kids or the kids say, gosh, the coach is texting me already. You don't have to respond. And that's the other problem with these things is we think that, oh, somebody, you know, texted me. I've got to, I've got to react to it. No, you don't. Yeah. You, you get, you're entitled to a minute or five and see how you feel in three days. And if you're ready to make that next step for next year, fine. And if not, 
that's when we can talk about reframing and maybe you're moving on to something else. Yeah. KJ Delantonia in her book, um, um, how to be a happier parent did this really cool thing where her kid wanted to do one more sport. He was a really athletic kid and he loved all sports and wanted to do another sport. She did this cool thing where she took this pause and asked him to write it down a list of all of the things that he really, really loves doing. And then they sat down and they talked about how many hours there are in the day and all of the things that he wasn't going to have time to do because of this new sport. And, you know, just having that pause, having the moment of you don't have to make the decision right in the second, uh, but let's look at this from all angles. I think the pause is a really important part. And, and unfortunately, that pause used to be built into youth sports, right? There used to be like an actual break over the summer or whatever. And there's less of that now. There's the summer program for traveling soccer or whatever the thing that then turns um, one sport into an all year activity. Yeah. 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 Um, Thank you. So, yeah. So back to your back to your book. So when you wrote Raising Empowered Athletes, um, tell me a little bit about just your process. So you have a lot going on. You have kids. Let's just do the nuts and bolts of what is your writing day look like on a day that you're going to get the writing done? So I. I have a morning ritual that I actually talk about in the book, but it's part of who I've become over the last five, six years. I started meditating like six years ago, started getting quiet on what's important to me. And then I journal every morning um, after I meditate and I write down my day as if it's already happened. So, oh my gosh, this morning, it was amazing. I'm going to have this beautiful discussion with Jess Leahy. And I, I'm already reliving something that I already, I've already had. I am huh. the writer, the director, the producer of my movie. So when I write something down, our brains don't know the difference between us thinking about it and us actually having already done it. So me just writing down my day, A, it sets the intention for what it is I want to accomplish. Whether it happens or not, we don't always have control over. But B, I think it either happens to you or through you. And you get to show up for yourself in a way that you want to. Otherwise, well, then I got to take the dog for a walk and I got to do this and I got to pick up the kids and I got, you just get overwhelmed. And some people are, I'm a morning writer. Some people, I'm an evening writer. Some people, I, you know, I listened to when you were talking about Stephen King and, you know, everybody has their process. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I love his question when people say, well, how do you do it? Well, I pick up a pencil and I start writing, (laughs) you know, like there, and I think everybody needs to have their own. So did I write every single day? No. There were days that I had other things going on, but I also, my dream time is my exercise time. And that's when the ideas start flowing. So I've written about the day and then I'm either out walking the dog or I'm exercising and I'll have a a call with a client and, oh, that's a really important topic. So that was helping me put all the, the scaffolding in. And so I really looked at it as how did we get here? How the, the craziness, this $20 billion giant hairball that we live in. And then what are the main issues that we have? And, and what are the, how do we address those? And then how are we getting out of here? And mm-hmm. how can we shift how we show up as a parent? So that was kind of how I approached it. And then for me, it's like, as soon as I had a roadmap, I could relax. <laughs> and then that allowed me to go, okay, now I'm going to cherry pick whatever different topic or I had you know, I had the podcast all along, which became this wonderful place to beta test ideas and, 
ask people about things that were on my mind. And so that's been this, I, you know, wonderful thing of just showing up for that all the time and building that muscle um, has been this great, uh, yeah, it just, it happened very slowly. Like I said, it was five years. So it was, you know, at a snail's pace, but I've had this beautiful, the timing is the timing. Mm-hmm. And when the right agent and when the, t- and next year in 12 months, I'll be an empty nester. So I'll be ramping up and doing book tours right now and I can go wherever because my daughter drives and the boys are going to be gone. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think I actually, you know, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously manifested, orchestrated that because I love being a mom and I love being present for them. And I love making dinners and I love taking them to their sports. So I really, you know, could I have hired a nanny or whoever, a driver or whatever? Yes. But now is like this beautiful moment where, not only do I have the time, but I have, yeah, I have all of this expertise, hopefully that I've acquired through the years. I'm not a sage from the stage. I'm a guide through the, from the side. I'm in the trenches with you. I'm also miserable at the tournament when my daughter's not playing and my son gets cut. And I mean, I'm living it. It's one on the phone you're watching and one, my husband's texting me that he hasn't played yet. And my daughter, you know, like, so I hope that again, this is a, a, oh, wow, this isn't easy. I mean, just the way you, your language in the gift of failure, which is there, there isn't a one size fits all for this. So we all have to, you know, take our experience and hopefully it shines a light on some things for some people who go, gosh, I didn't think of it that way. You know, it's really funny is turning that back around is I was just talking the other day with someone about the fact that I was at a gift of failure event. And this person said to me, oh my gosh, this thing you said in the gift of failure, like it really changed the way I looked at, it was like everything, my whole life. And she told me what the line was and I didn't have the heart to tell her that that's not in the gift of failure. Like that, that is clearly what she needed and something she read in the gift of failure sparked that in her. And that is fantastic. And that's all part of, it's the, the flip side of that conversation about, you know, once you put a book out into the world, it's not really yours anymore. It's the readers. And that can be for positive or for negative. But I love the fact that this woman was like, the, this is like one of the most important things I've ever read. And yet it wasn't even in the book, but that's cool. That's what she made of this thing. And so how are you feeling about, you know, releasing this thing into the world and having it not be yours anymore? Beautiful. I'm so ready because <laughs> I, I just, it is just such a, I've been thinking about it for so long yeah. that it's like, it, and, and I've been doing a lot of reps. I do a ton of, you know, I've been doing the podcast. I do, you know, speak for free. If you're trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? How do I build a platform? You know, yeah. I spoke at my daughter's school when she was in the fourth grade for free and for all the, you know, NCLs, all the national charity leagues and all of those events. Like if that's your thing, just start building those muscles. And now I'm to that point where great. I, it's fun to think, okay, I've got a couple tools in my tool belt that can say, great, this is, you know, if you can buy 40 books, I'll be there. And, and I'm happy to, just share it. And if it serves you, like, that's my, that's my biggest hope is that you find a sentence or five in there that resonate with you that you're like, okay, I get it. I know. And that's, I feel the same. I mean, some of the texts I get at 11 o'clock at night, like you have to speak to her tonight. She's got a big tennis tournament tomorrow. And, she's going, <laughs> and you're like, I, I, I know I'm not curing cancer, but I know people feel that way. Right. And they feel yeah. that like overwhelm and, Again, we all feel that as parents, we only, I don't think anybody sets out to screw up their kid. 
everybody's doing the best with what they have from where they are. And you know, you say that thing about, um, it, you know, not curing cancer, but at the same time, I think the reason that so many of us get messed up is because we're judging our parenting based on those little emergencies like that 11 o'clock fear. Um, and I, at one point, uh, my daughter screwed something up royally and I, I got into such a panic about it that I had to pull over on the, off the side of the road because I thought I was going to throw up because I really did think that she had, this was going to change the trajectory of her life in some way. And it has ended up having no impact whatsoever on the trajectory of her life. But boy, in that moment, I was the worst parent. She had failed miserably. You know, I'm even this person who has written this book. And yet it's it's those emergency moments that actually if we're able to take that moment to sit back and step back and maybe just listen or not say anything and, and realize that it's over the long haul, you know, the big picture is really where we uh, find the useful parts of what our parenting has been about, I think. But Which is yeah. where I go back to. It starts with what is your morning ritual? What are you doing yeah. to check in with yourself? Not about even writing, but just about life. Because when the headwinds come up, I was actually just telling that story, my son's freshman year, the oldest one, he, he got lazy. I mean, now we're talking about chat GPT and all this, but he just, you know, copy pasted one of his right. friend's homework assignments and put his name, it was stupid enough to just put his name at the top. And the school never called for a while until I got the letter that said he was going to be in, you know, he was, he was getting one, one right. strike or whatever. And I, I was saying, I did like physically ill, like I'm raising <laughs> a cheer. Like, what does this say about me? I'm this whole, you know, like, okay, pump the brakes, Kirsten. This is not about you. And, you know, I mentioned to one friend, she goes, oh, God, everybody cheated on that assignment. And then somehow you're like, you want to rationalize what their behavior was. And I remember pulling him aside, it's like, okay, it may be three strikes and you're out at that high school, but that's not how it works in this house, right? Like, we're not going to operate that way. And then when you separate yourself from it and like, let's get into the why. Why yeah. did you do that? And what yeah. are you getting out of that? And and again, I don't. I honestly, it's not the end of the world. But what did you learn from it? And if right. you learned something from it, I'm good with it. If you feel like, oh, I got away with it, or I almost got away with it, let me try again. Yeah, years ago, years ago, I was speaking to some school counselors, and this counselor said, "Can you help us with this problem? We have this kid." He uh, cheated on um, a big research paper and he's supposed to get a zero for this assignment. And the parents are saying, this is not going to happen. No, you have, no. And what was so interesting about it was that this kid wants to go to college to be a research scientist. And, you know, the lesson in that is if you screw this up in high school and you get a zero on a paper in high school, you get a zero on a paper in high school. If you never learn about the the rules of plagiarism and what plagiarism is, and who knows, maybe this kid had some justification for doing this thing. If you don't get to the why of why he did it and help him do better next time, he could end up in a position where he's in graduate school and he falsifies some results or plagiarizes someone else's work, and that's his entire career. So I would so hope that they would take that zero in high school and learn from it as opposed to, you know, losing an entire career 10 years down the road because they've never. Did you see the Stanford president just got fired? Oh, yes, that exact reason. 
Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. exa- that's exactly that example. And I mean, same thing's happening in sports. Well, he got cut now. Sort Steph Curry. They got a, he's got a new show out called Underrated, and he's like, every team I didn't make because I was only five feet tall was a gift. I it made me more resilient and a harder worker. And he goes and forget basketball. It's just made me a better human being. But when you're the parent in the moment of with the kid who's twice the size of your kid and they're getting all the accolades and they're getting the top team and they're getting recruited, it's hard. And it's hard to have that perspective of, oh, they're there. This is going to make you more resilient, right? This is going to make you a better human. But it's true. But there's that line that, and I get this a lot, there's that line, especially in sports between, and I guess this is another question for you, which is, you know, where's that line between beating your head against the wall because you're just not like, I am never going to be an elite. I was never going to be an elite gymnast. I'm just too big, too tall, too whatever. But if I love gymnastics, like where's that line between just beating my head against the wall and um, realizing that uh, there, this how does a parent convey to their beloved, wonderful child that maybe this isn't the sport that um, is going to be your career. It can still be your love, but maybe it's not going to be the thing that's going to take you all the way. How do you do that? How do you talk to a child about that? There really are three pieces about being super successful. And and one is natural, God-given, whatever, talent, ability, athleticism, size, like David David Epstein talks about, right? Like you can't teach height, as I like to say in basketball, like or volleyball, right? Like you either have it or you don't. There's the desire to get better and to be focused and and to have that. And then there's the understanding of what my limitations are. And maybe you do have a kid that is super passionate about all three of those. And a good example, uh, my son's high school basketball team, the kid was 5'10", but he was in the gym every single day before and after. By senior year, he was dunking. But his attitude and his, my son was 6'6", and you know, one of the better players, and he would be in the backseat of the car going, yeah, Parker, and you did this, and you're great at this. And and guess what? Fast forward three years, the kid's at Indiana University. He showed up at my house the other day. Can I wash your car, Mrs. Jones? Like, he's hustling. He's going after what he wants. He wants to get his, he's like, he's reaching out to the alum. He goes, yeah, this one alum is a hedge fund owner. He called me right back. I'm like, that kid's going to be yeah. fine. Yeah. Right. In fact, my son's going to need a job in a couple of years and you're probably <laughs> going to be hiring him. Right. So yeah. parents, what are the things, what are the skill sets that you see back to KJ's example? Right. Which is I said, do a research project. What are those things that I don't need to get paid to do this? This is just fun. I get to be whatever, either it's researching or it's meeting people or it's OK. Now, what sports or activities? Maybe it's not competitive. Maybe it's surfing or, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a competitive sport either. Maybe it's in a different arena altogether or one you haven't thought of that could be, again, 80% of kids are dropping out of sport by age 13 now. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it isn't fun. Why? Because we've sucked all the fun out of it. We adults. So it's very understandable that kids say, I don't need this headache. So how can you help them figure out, okay, great, you're 15 and you're deciding to pivot. That's okay. What have we learned from all your years of baseball, football, whatever? And what are the pieces from it that you loved that there might be something out there 
Like right now, my summer, my my daughter, who's an okay volleyball player, but isn't probably going to play in college. She's at UCLA doing a screenwriting camp. She's like, I really like to write. I got an A in my creative writing class. I have a teacher who came to me and said, you should do this. And her eyes lit up. We mm-hmm. all want to know we're enough. Mm-hmm. And yes, I had visions that my daughter would follow my volleyball, but she's not. And that's fine. This is not my journey. It's her journey. But if she comes out of that screenwriting camp, like this is the best thing ever. I won. Yeah, we won. I did. I did an interview with the parents of a professional musician because I wanted to talk to parents who have a kid whose dream hopes and dreams just made them a little nervous because like, you know. <laughs> How many people are going to make a living being either a professional athlete or a professional musician? And, you know, they're they're They realized that it was very much a part of that sort of thing that our, a lot of our kids feel is empty language, that whole I just want you to be happy kind of thing. But it's bigger than that. It's about being fulfilled and finding this thing that you really love. And when you do that, there are other things to be gained from it. And what's been really interesting is watching um, my niece, the thing that she has really, really wanted. um, And I don't know, I guess, I think, no, this is good. I'm allowed to tell this. The thing that she has really, really wanted is the recognition as someone who's a really good sports person, the sportsmanship awards, you know, when the the whether it's the umpires or the coaches you know someone agrees this is the person during this tournament who's really just been there for their teammates and for other athletes and that really was one of the things that has meant the most to her and it's clearly i told her this when she finally got one of these awards it was one of the things i was most proud of her for and that's one thing she discovered about herself is that yeah she loves pinning people but she also loves the recognition that she is a helper that she is a good friend that she's a good teammate and you know if if something happens and she can't wrestle you know that's something that she still gets to take away from this whole entire experience is knowing how important it is to her to be a good teammate and that's something I never really got uh, because I wasn't a team athlete kind of person that I'm a little bit jealous of I have to admit the one slide I use in every presentation whether I'm talking to parents or athletes is the top 10 things that require zero talent showing up being a great teammate, being positive, giving extra, asking for feedback, having good body language. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many things that are within within our own control, yet we spend most, well, the coach doesn't like me. Well, that teacher doesn't like me. Well, that's not fair. She's bigger than me or smaller than me. Or whatever. We give all these examples of what is going on around us that has nothing to do with us. But yet this kid, Matias, who would sit in the backseat of the car, even though he didn't touch the floor and be the best teammate ever, that skill is what's going to make him very successful in life. Yeah. Because he's not looking for the score. He's looking for the assist. (laughs) Well, and And, with a slight nod to the substance use prevention stuff in the addiction inoculation, one of the things we know is that the people who have the greatest influence over their teammates and to shape the team and the or the school or the community norms around substance use are 
team captains. So when I get to talk to coaches, I'm like, look, think about the amount of power you have here when you're figuring out who the team captain is going to be, because it isn't necessarily about your strongest player. It isn't necessarily about like the most popular kid on the team. It's about the ki- the kid who has the ability to shape the culture on the team, whether that's around, you know, do we go to bed early and not have any drinks the night before that big tournament or, you know, just what is our community vibe here? Um, those those people have a lot of power to coaches and obviously the team captains have so much power. A fabulous book is called The Captain Class, and he studied the most successful teams in history. And in order to be considered in every sport, in cricket, in rugby, in basketball, and everything, in order to be in pro teams, in order to be considered even, you had to have won four world championships in a row. So that like eliminated almost everybody, right? And then he broke down what made them really, really successful. And yes, there's the captain that Ronaldinho and Ronaldo and the ones that we know, the household names, the Jordans. But he identified 16 different leadership characteristics that every successful team needs. And he identified, I, I can't even remember her name because she wasn't a household name, but when the women won the World Cup, yay, it started today, uh, the, like in 2000, I want to say it was, and they got invited to the White House. And mm-hmm. she is, she's the bag carrier. She's the one that, you know, nobody knew who she was. She wasn't this big star, but she was the one that she was the, she was the glue and the mm-hmm. one that everybody needed in order to get there. And they asked her, can you come to the White House and you know meet the president? She said, no, I'm washing my hair. She wanted nothing <laughs> to do with, with glory or being, a, you know, being the accolade. So there are roles on, I believe on every single team, there are roles for each, you know, you may be the goal scorer, you may be the one that has to carry the water. And we need every single one of you on the team, you know, pulling on the rope as hard as you can. Yeah. The the interesting thing about the team captain thing is not only do they have the power to shape um, sort of the community aspect and the standards aspect and the thing about substance use, when the teammates look at that captain, they gauge, they will often adjust their own substance use based on what the team captain is doing. And they tend to Ooh. overestimate. So there's this thing that happens where we tend to overestimate other people's sort of investment in having, for example, alcohol around. And if we were to um, estimate how much some people in our community drink, we will tend to overestimate it. And then if you are male, you will be more likely to up your um, consumption based on that overestimation, that false um understanding of how much the person drinks but what's fascinating about that is and for females they tend to um, pull away um, and isolate a little more which isn't good either but the interesting thing about that is that if we can if we can pick team captains if we can pick you know the leaders in uh in student groups or in school groups or whatever that who are people that are there to make for a better more healthy community you know then that can go a really long way but anyway, I digress no. into the No, and that's stuff. the tie into the second thing, which I know we're at an hour, so we're probably needing to wrap up. Eh, but, whatever. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Okay, good. <laughs> but yes, let's let's dive into your newest book and latest book and all the stuff that again my audience is dying to hear about because our kids are in the middle of, of this. And, yeah. and how do we how do we help them? Um, you know, I love everything you talk about with, you know, 
it's keeping them out of the game of playing it, mm-hmm. right? But as long as you possibly can. Maybe you can give a little overview for my listeners who may not have heard you talk about it. Yeah, so the the message in the addiction inoculation really is delay, 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 not just because substance use in adolescence is different from substance use in an adult. Um, Adolescent brains are not done developing. Um, The longer we can keep the addictive substances out of that sort of cognitive development phase, out of their brains, um, out of messing with that development, the better. So we're preserving their brains. Their brains aren't done developing until they're early to mid twenties. So there's that aspect of it. You know, you want your kid's brain to be able to grow to its greatest potential. But the other thing is that the earlier kids start using, the higher their lifelong risk for substance use disorder, for developing substance use disorder. So if you're in eighth grade and you start drinking, you have a 50, around a 50% lifelong risk of developing substance use disorder. And if you um, don't start until you're in 10th grade, it's about half of that. And if you don't start until you're 18, it's um, about half of the, it goes down to like around 10%. So, and that's based on the fact that, yeah, there are some statistical confounders there as per usual, but that's the big picture. The interesting thing from the sports angle is People ask me this all the time, like, okay, well, don't sports have a preventative effect when it comes to substance use disorder? And the answer is it depends on the sports. It depends on the sports. It depends on the media around the sports. It depends on the marketing that's happening within the sport. It depends on how high contact, whether or not it's a high contact sport versus a low contact sport. And that comes back to the brain again. So the the big four when it comes to substance use are lacrosse, wrestling, hockey and football and how much of that is attributable to the fact that those are the also the four big sports when it comes to head injuries because we know that in people who have CTE that you know if they if they suffer repeated concussions that some of that um you know, your impulse control and things like that can, can lessen so I'm not I don't I've never seen really good statistics on that but there's also the marketing that's happening in those sports, those, you know, football and, you know, would you have a Super Bowl party without beer? You know, not a lot of people would. So there's that whole idea that we are being marketed to from a very young age in certain sports. The reason that you see the Carlson logo or the Coors logo or the, you know, Bud logo is because it's worth a lot of money to, to build uh, brand loyalty from a very early age. Um, and it turns out that, for example, your likelihood of being a drinker in college is affected not just by whether or not you are a participant in college sports, but by whether or not you are a fan of college sports. And it depends on the sport. There are some sports and that have very low levels of substance use, like, you know, they tend to be more individual sports, things like cross-country running and that kind of thing. So I was doing a little cheer when my oldest kid became a runner. Um, so anyway, the, the answer is you have to know the culture within that sport. Um, and obviously the country you're in, you know, there's the rugby and the soccer thing in, you know, the UK. There's a very big drinking culture having to do with that as well. So it's a big fat. It depends. But... It also gives you, sports give you a wonderful lever. You know, levers make um, the heavy lifting easier. That's the whole point of levers. And the heavy lifting here is about helping your kid understand why it might be a bad idea for them to start using substances. And 
if they're really, really dedicated to a sport, um, that becomes another way for you to say, look, these goals you have around this sport, you know, go read Chris Heron's book, you know, Basketball Junkie, um, go watch his 30 for 30 or his wonderful documentary called First Day. You know, Chris Heron was from Massachusetts, wanted to be a Celtic more than anything in the entire world, and he finally made it. And uh, he unfortunately was also addicted to opiates by the time. And there's this incredible scene where he talks about waiting outside of Boston Garden in his warm-ups um, because his dealer wasn't going to make it there on time. And he had to be outside because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't play while he was going through withdrawals. So, you know, it, it can be an incredible lever. Um, but it's also Chris Heron's story in particular is a great, uh, a great way of understanding that sometimes we don't have all the power to, uh, to control what our kids do and don't do and the path that they end up taking. Um, if, if his love of being on the Celtics wasn't enough to get him to stop using opiates, um, maybe it's time for us to stop blaming ourselves when our kids, you know, go down a path that isn't the one we would pick for them. So. So what about the difference? And I get to hear this a lot now, particularly post coming out of COVID and kids were depressed. And so they'll turn to drugs, like mostly right. smoking over alcohol, because then I don't have a hangover. Then I can go to practice the next day. <laughs> Right. I know I can, yeah. you know, do it and, and get away with it. Like, is there is that more addictive or less addictive or what does the research show on that? Yeah. So there, the problem with the terms like more addictive, less addictive. Yes. Nicotine is incredibly addictive. It's one of the hardest drugs to kick. Um, caffeine is also incredibly difficult to kick. And, you know, as evidenced by the fact that I'm sitting here with my coffee at the table next to me, um, you know, there are some drugs that have drugs, alcohol, whatever, that have notorious like, oh, this is way more addictive than these other things. But really what it comes down to is whether or not it's having an effect on your child's existence. And so when people say, you know, well, how do I know if my child is starting to have a problem with drugs, alcohol, whatever, you know, you're talking about, um, you look for changes in your kid. Um, and that's the answer to the question of how do I know if my child is having a mental health problem? Or how do I know if my kid has an eating disorder? Or how do I know if my kid is depressed? Or how do I know if my kid is using drugs and alcohol? Um, your your gut feeling about the changes, um, especially rapid changes in your kid is your starting place. And even if those changes seem positive. Uh, in sports, especially, you have the issue of um, performance-enhancing drugs. Um, so if you have a kid who's been really, really depressed and just all of a sudden out of the blue, they're suddenly not depressed anymore, and you're really happy about that, you still have to stop and think, hold on, yesterday they were a wreck, and all of a sudden today they're going at 100 miles an hour and they seem really positive there are drugs and there are mental health issues can make that can make that happen. So as much as I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, sudden changes in your child are something that need to be considered, whether from a, an addiction or a, a mental health standpoint. So and that needs to be more important than, you know, dealing with those rapid changes, dealing with the fact that there's a change in your kid needs to be more important than the school, the sports, the all those other, you know, things that can wait if we're dealing with the core mental health issues with our child. Which goes back to, I mean, things you touched on the gift of failure too, but I don't know if you said this, but one of the best parenting tips that I ever heard was don't have one 60 minute conversation, but have 61 minute conversations with your child, which I mean, and you could say the same about sport, like just because they loved it at eight, 
doesn't mean they love it at 15. So are you checking in with them both on and off the field? Like, is this something that's still interesting to you? Okay, no, we're not going to quit in the middle of the season, assuming there is no abuse or anything like that. If it's just, I'm not into this anymore. Okay, fine, we can pivot. But it's checking in and being on that. And I think that's one of the problems with the kids on their cell phones in their rooms. And I don't know, they get up, they had to go to practice before I was even up and they're not home until late. And so they're maybe not even witnessing whether they're having, you know, changes or not. So schedule a vacation together, schedule a date together where you're spending a day together. I mean, I like to drag my kids on a hike and it's like, you know what, we're not really hiking because we need to hike. We're hiking because I, for, you know, one time you got to put your phone down and you got to tell me what's going on in your brain. And eventually you may hike for the first three miles and not say a word, but eventually things start to leak out that, Oh, okay. How did that feel? Oh, what's going on there? Right? Like finding ways to get them to talk about their feelings in a way that isn't a, well, how was practice? And what do you want to do? And and what's going on? And whose friends were you with? You know? And here's the secret behind those difficult conversations. They're only difficult because we don't have them very often. But the more often we have difficult conversations, whether it's about sex, whether it's about drugs and alcohol, whether it's about, you know, maybe a sport that's not going very well for you, the more often we have those conversations, the easier they become over time. And that's, again, big picture parenting, right? That we are not, we are not, we cannot judge ourselves or our parenting or our kids based on the small emergencies. We have to be looking at the big picture and how everyone is doing, not just as an individual, but as a family. And and I love the, that those conversations tend to happen when we're least <laughs> anticipating them, but we do need to approach them because that's the only way that they're going to happen ever. And yeah. Well, we have gone way, way over. I am so excited. <laughs> this is uh, this book. Um, I mean, when Raising Empowered Athletes showed up on my doorstep, it very much felt like the, a completion of a journey to me. And it wasn't even my journey. It was your journey. But I'm just so excited um, for this book. I think it's going to be um, a really, really important book. And I'm just so proud of you. I'm just so proud. Thank you. Of, Thank you. Know, you. The, I just, I could never have anticipated that we would still be chatting about this, you know, going on seven (laughs) years later. And I'm just, I'm so happy. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And and again, I want to say it publicly too. It's just been, we all need people who see something in us that we don't see in ourselves. And that's, I believe, one of the best gifts you can give anyone is to hold space for somebody so that they can take a swing at it. And whether this sells a hundred copies or, you know, ends up in, in the bin, it's not, that's not important. It really is the process, not the outcome. Yeah. It's yeah. the fact that I was willing to stick with it and, and show, and I actually, you were at the very beginning talking about failing and failing publicly. And I have a friend who runs a club, Austin Juniors. And so I said, can I come speak to at this huge convention where you have 10,000 athletes playing? She said, absolutely. And I got there and no one showed up to the talk and it was about, (laughs) yeah. And it was like, do I post about this? Do I not? And you know, we have all been there. We have all, (laughs) all authors have been there. Yeah. And, and honestly, it was, it was a blessing in that I loved my, my response to it was, it wasn't a woe is me. I suck. Mm -hmm. It had nothing. It was, it was put in the hall that was, you know, a mile, whatever. half a whatever block down <laughs> it was out of the way it wasn't in the right format it wasn't in the, 
there were a lot of reasons, and I'm not using that as an excuse, but as a rather like, it was one of the first times that I didn't say, oh, I suck. No. Yeah. It was just, it was well, like and you'll know, you'll know next time to advocate for the location. You're going to know to advocate for the marketing. You're, I mean, every single part of this is something that you can learn from and, and have be a part of this, you know, gift of failure, you know, em, empowering ourselves sort of journey. So it's, it's all good. It's all good. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to do the pod swap and, <laughs> for all of it. I'm just I'm like really grateful. Yeah. Thank so if so people much. want to find out more about you and find your book and um, all that sort of stuff, where can people find you? Yeah. Books are everywhere. Books are sold. Um, uh, but also on my website, kirstenjonesinc.com and the podcast is on there as well. Hashtag raising athletes. Um, and yeah, please like and share and comment and share it with a parent who is going through what we're going through. And we, you know, we can go through it together and ask good questions. And I'm looking to, one of my goals is to try to grow my engagement and get more people talking about this. Cause I think, mm -hmm. you know, this is what we need is, is the more we can talk about it. We can, you know, we can name it to tame it. We can, yeah. we can put some words to it that are going to help all of us and we can all yeah. help each other. And the pie is infinitely big. We don't, you know, <laughs> my success doesn't belittle anybody else's or your child's success on the podium doesn't make my kid any less than, you know? Yeah. And for people who want to find my stuff, you can find me at jessicalahey.com um, and at all the socials. I'm like teacher Leahy or Jess Leahy at all the different socials. Anyway, so, and uh, my books are The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. And um, and yeah, if if, uh, if your school is one of those places where you need to get new gear and do some substance use prevention stuff, that's what I spend most of my time traveling around and talking about. So anyway. Do you have a, do you have a full fall? Uh, yes and no. I've left some space because I have a new writing project. And so one has to leave room for the words. So anyway. <laughs> all right. For the hashtag am writing listeners, thank you so much for listening. And um, until next time, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work. Listeners, it's KJ here asking for a favor. Have you reviewed hashtag AmWriting in your pod player yet? Would you? I know you're driving or running or cooking or whatever you do while listening, and we are there for that. But if you love us and could take a minute to hit that five star button and toss in a comment, we'd appreciate it. Oh, and if you don't love us, carry on with what you're doing. In fact, we hear the review button isn't working right now. Don't check.